What's up, podcast? If you haven't done so already, please subscribe and share the podcast with everyone you know. Even if you didn't like the episode, share it anyway, because I'm trying to raise awareness and support for what the Detroit People's Food Co-op is doing in the North End neighborhood of Detroit. The co-op is an African-American-led, community-owned grocery cooperative. Their purpose is to provide improved access to healthy food and food education to Detroit residents. Learn more about their mission at DetroitPeoplesFoodCoop.com and sign up to become a member slash owner today. I hope you guys enjoyed the episode. Thanks. You guys are having an awesome morning or night wherever you guys are. I'm here with Liz Tintinelli of Liz in Detroit. Hey Liz, how's it going? Great, Chris. How are you? I'm doing good. Doing good. A little cold, but it's Michigan, so we should be used to it by now. Yeah, at least we're not outside right now. Right. We're right. doing this inside. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So let's just dive right into it. Um, you told me a funny story when we were at the Seward property the other day. <laughs> <laughs> How many car accidents have you been involved in? Oh my God, you're getting so, uh-huh. Since birth? Or ones I was responsible for? Let's Respon- make that clear. Respon- yeah, right, responsible okay. for. Uh, let's see. Oh, one, two, three, four. This is awful. Six. <laughs> I think only six. Six. That's horrible. Is that a lot? I mean, but I'm 47. That's not, if you think of average, I don't know. That's that bad. But this is, most of these occurred, honestly, in my 20s. Not even in high school. These were like post-high school. I think even post-college, now they think about it. Yeah. But still, that's just so much. Well, and the last few actually happened with the closer frequency, which was even probably more jarring, like a year apart, which, yeah, I kind of was going for a while where I was getting into an accident almost every 12 months. That's not good. But I'm a safe driver, people. You can check my record. Everything's been expunged. It's okay. <laughs> Look, like I said, if I'm hitchhiking down the road and I see you, <laughs> I think I'm going to just keep walking. Well, that's a funny story. So when I was a kid, actually, when I was a kid, my dad, when we would be with him in the wintertime, we would drive around. I always thought we would drive around parts of Detroit more so than parts of where he lived in Dearborn, Dearborn Heights. But we would drive around and he, with us in the car, and he would help people who would get stranded. I just remember that a lot as a kid. People, if they were stuck, we would pull over and help them get unstuck. We would do that. Really? Yeah, isn't that wild? I remember that. Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. And it was always fun, because everybody was always happy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> You'd come to the rescue. But I yeah, bet, we used yeah to, I just remember that a lot that. as a kid. We'd drive around and help people who got stuck. Yeah, it's funny. Wow. Mm-hmm. So how did you get started in real estate? Oh, so yeah, a long-winded question. Um, it's funny, I had a good friend of mine from high school through college when I attended the University of Colorado that I think was always had in the back of her mind that I would be good in property management and some kind of real estate. And we're not, unfortunately, not friends now, but she was always prepping me post-college to get jobs in, like, property management. I'm like, no, no, you know. So I'd moved back from Colorado um, in 96, and I was planning on uh, saving up money 
to move to New York to live with my sister and figure my, you know, my life out. And a good friend of the family who was an artist, her mom was a great real estate agent in the city of Detroit, and she needed an assistant because she'd moved back to Michigan, was starting a new development project. She's like, I know you're trying to save up money and do this or that. Why don't you come work as my assistant? And, you know, you can make money. So I'm like, okay, great. And it kind of was, so this was like early 97. Um, and it everything just kind of clicked. It was a conversion project on the Detroit River, Indian Village Manor. Um, about six months into working for her, I got my real estate license. And it just seemed the most natural, normal thing to do. It was easy, you know, stressful part is like working that contract, you know, and doing your fiduciary duties, but every other aspect, the social aspect and engaging aspect of it was just kind of meant for me. Just came natural. Yeah, it's kind of wow. funny. And that company that I was with at the time was the Farman Group, and I they were kind of like breeding me to be more into property management, which on the tail end of when the market started to take a downturn in the early 2000s, kind of thereabouts, I realized I hated it because I was working on a project far out of the city and you know I had to concentrate on making cookies to make things smell right and in a property, I don't know. It just wasn't, yeah, I didn't, I didn't like property management at all. But it's funny because so much of what I do in time management and you know, personality, conflict resolution in real estate is so much about management. Yeah. So it's kind of like I'm doing it anyway, anyway, even though it's not specifically property management. It's like life coach slash, you know, real estate advisor, you know, yeah. for people regardless. So you're still juggling and putting out fires and finding resolution for things yeah. as I would have done probably in a position of property management. Yeah. So it's kind of funny. That's the funny thing about the universe. It will find a way to just work itself out. And you will look back and reflect and say, well, I guess this happened anyway. Yeah. And a far cry from thinking I was going to be a marine biologist studying, you know. I wanted to ask you, what did you <laughs> Yeah, and I ended up going to Colorado. So, yeah. So, um, what is it? Probably the summer before my senior year in college, my mom had, like, it, it had raised me like loving Jacques Cousteau, loving sharks, sharks, loving aquatic life. And so I just felt in my head, this is what I'm going to end up doing. Like, I love the water. We'd spent lots of trips, you know, and I love swimming. And granted, had never gotten my scuba license, but just loved the water and fascinated by sharks, like lived for everything Jacques Cousteau. Mm. So my mom had a good friend who worked out in California and we got wind that they were looking for or taking interns at the Monterey Bay Aquarium. And I got to the final stages of interviewing for this internship program and ended up unfortunately not getting at the last minute because they wanted somebody in state or whatever. But like my mom was gonna set me up with staying with her friend and I kind of took pause and I'm like, so now what am I supposed to do? Because I thought like that really would have set the tone for my life going forward to college. And I still, when I was applying to colleges, I was looking at colleges with strong science um, in biology backgrounds. Like I looked at BU, I looked at U of M, I looked at Michigan State, I looked at um, UMass Amherst. And again, the same friend who had her thoughts for me and getting into property management said, I'm going to Colorado, you should go there. And I'm like, what? Because I'd gone skiing out west many times and thought of it more like fantasy land. But I'm like, really, to go to college? And they actually had a very strong science biology background 
more so in the direction of like engineering, like um, nautical ergonomics or whatever. Like they have a really, you know, nothing related to marine biology by any means, yeah. but a strong biology department nonetheless. Um, and it was one of those things where I know at the end of the day, I really wanted to go away from Michigan. I was timid about going to Boston. It seemed too much of a big city at the time that I was ready for, you know, and I didn't want to stay in state because everybody I knew was staying in state. So I just made the leap and did last late registration for University of Colorado Boulder. Um, drove out there with family and the rest is history. I was out there for six and a half years. Before I came back home. Yeah, once I got out there, I didn't want to leave. Yeah. But then, again, the way that the world turns, like you end up doing what you're meant to be. You know, I was out in Colorado at a time where that whole state was changing. Like the Vail Mountain uh, region was was getting big in real estate, and I didn't think that that's what I wanted to do. And I'm like kicking myself now because I could have gotten into a real estate out there before things even got crazy. Yeah. But you know, everything happens for a reason. Uh, but I moved back because I realized so much of my roots, I think, were here. Yeah. Everything about Michigan, family, friends, just the climate, I think I really missed a lot. It was hard when I moved back um, initially because you know, you're kind of in this, I think I was living on this cloud post-college, you know, and then when I came back here, it's like, okay, now reality really hits, now you really have to get a job. Right. What is that job gonna be? You know, yeah. so thankfully, the time span between moving back and kind of getting my heels into real estate wasn't that far apart. But I still think it took a while to really get into my full groove of it as a like a, as a career and business. Gotcha, gotcha. You know? So before I get to the next question, mm -hmm. I feel like um, just to provide a little context for the audience, I don't think I gave you the necessary. Uh, proper introduction <laughs> to really let people know when it comes to real estate and Midtown and downtown Detroit and really throughout Metro Detroit, Liz uh, is pretty much crushing it and she runs it. So <laughs> when it comes to just real estate, being a realtor, getting people to buy homes, sell homes, she's the go-to person in Detroit, especially Midtown and downtown Detroit. So with that being said, what's your favorite neighborhood in Detroit? You know, it's hard, because I think I've learned, I grew up in Lafayette Park, um, in one of the Mies van der townhouses right at Lafayette and Rivard, and to me, that was like one of the greatest places to ever spend a childhood. And that's always been a strong draw for me. I still love it over there, because of its proximity with everything in the city of Detroit. And that's also changing, but I don't know. I'm, I like looking in areas that are up and coming, you know, and kind of see the see the potential in areas that that maybe other people haven't considered or aren't necessarily on the top of their list, but maybe should be. Um, and I've been spending a lot more time working with the development group in parts of North LaSalle and LaSalle Gardens. And something about that neighborhood just draws me. I mean, I I've loved a lot of the areas and thought for a while it would be settling in parts of West Village and Indian Village. But after spending time in LaSalle more recently and consistently over the last year, it, I've really got a whole new impression of that area and really love it. 
actually a lot more. I've also spent a lot of time in the North End. So I think my heart still lies close to the city center overall. But, you know, I, I feel like the the areas that are probably within, you know, two to five miles of like the city core is very interesting to me and how they are flourishing as you know, as kind of like arteries off of like Woodward and Grand River and Jefferson and Grand Boulevard. It's kind of a very interesting area to me. So, I mean, it's not specific exactly to a part, but it's like kind of what I'm intrigued in just because I've seen so much high-end development in the city, which is great. I think to be able to provide a product that I think our city has strongly been lacking when other cities have been growing tremendously and various price points and high-end and luxury style for us to actually be just starting getting into that market is pretty amazing. But I can't help, you know, having grown up in the city, know what an importance it is for having a strong middle class. So the neighborhoods that can provide housing for people, you know, not 300 plus, but say, you know, between 100 and 250 is kind of intriguing to me because that's like our life, uh, you know, our life breed of the city. That's like, I think that keeps us strong and makes us strong. Um, Agreed. And keeps us, keeps our balance. So those areas that I feel that can provide that for more of the many and in providing good quality residential is is a really important piece of as we're growing and building to be able to maintain and build upon. Yeah, yeah, definitely agree. That's why I got really excited when I saw the development and everything happening in the Liver Norris area mm-hmm. um, around University District and Grand River. You know, they really put a lot of effort and a lot of energy into helping those businesses out and helping people really get on their feet over there to say, hey, you know, we understand that it's a lot of development happening and closer to the city, but we understand the importance of uh, the development that needs to take place Mm -hmm. in the smaller neighborhoods as well. Yeah, I mean, just knowing that there, you know, there are strong east siders and strong west siders and, and seeing that whether it's from a local community level or getting support now from city, state, federal legislator of recognizing the importance of building up the strength of those surrounding communities is pretty great. Because I think it, there's a big misconception about you know where all the money is going and that too much of it's going downtown. But we've had a very sped up process of this kind of development um, in the city post bankruptcy where other cities have had years if not decades of that kind of growth and you know constant influx of large amounts of money um, that I think we just we have to remember that um, we have to start somewhere you know and I think building up our city core is essential because having it strong will enable all of those surrounding areas to benefit overall you know so it I think it felt at times that it was imbalanced because so much was being pumped into the city core, but you know, rebuilding it and making it strong again is essential for those other areas to have any chance of getting the money and getting the support and funding that it's seeing now. It definitely needs a lot more, but I'm seeing great strides occur with 
those areas being able to grow on, on a retail and commercial level in addition to their residential base. Got it, yeah. got it. For 2020, which neighborhood do you believe is gonna be the next up to see investment and really see a lot of activity? I don't think there's just one. You know, I've, I've been seeing a lot of wonderful things pop up in parts of Southwest. So that's bridging the gap between Dearborn and Detroit. Yeah. Um, you know, in, in areas of like Delray, um, yeah, with the, the addition of the new bridge. I yeah. see areas just north of Indian Village and West Village, like by um, Pingree Park, also another great area. So this is kind of north of Mac and Warren. Um, I drive through there from where I live on the east side to get downtown all the time, and just this beautiful stock of houses. And now that the Parks and Recs division of the city is flourishing and we're seeing a lot of our green spaces finally get more maintained, you know, it's just showing the city in a whole new light where you've got these great neighborhoods that were always there. We might have missed them before, you know, hidden by all of these overgrown green spaces, but there's some really beautiful pockets, Um, you know, and even seeing parts of like, yeah, Six Mile now flourish, um, where a lot of emphasis was going north of Seven Mile, seeing more things fill in between six and seven, but going even further west past Livernois towards Myers and Wyoming um, is exciting to see. You know, again, because the buildup of those communities is making um, affordable, you know, choices for people that aren't, you know, 300 plus necessarily, but there might be strong in the 80, 90 to $150,000 range, which I think it provides a great deal of balance for what people can buy into, you know, that, um, you know, are the servicers and, you know, the, the, the foundation of our Metro Detroit community. What can we expect from the real estate market over the next three to five years. You want me to look into my crystal ball? Yep. Because yeah, I have one, no. Yeah, I mean. Because people are predicting so many crazy things. I've heard the downturn, the recession, I've heard just a minor correction in the yeah. market. Well, again, if we, if we all can actually take a much closer analysis of what got us into the recession of 08 and 09, a lot of that was based on the type of lending that was occurring you know, in the early parts of the 2000s leading up to that crash, which we're not seeing now. You know, we're seeing incentives from Mishta and HUD to make to make purchasing more affordable, but we're definitely seeing a whole different set of guidelines that people have to go through in order to get financed. That's nothing in comparison to like the no-doc loan kind of thing that we saw in the early 2000s. So it's not the same type of financial hurdles as we are, you know, now. But what we do see now is a lot of upset on from the federal government side, you know, whether it's tariffs and such that are, for, you know, that are affecting our homegrown economics of the auto industry to manufacturing, those kind of things. So, yeah, I mean, if something in that realm turns upside down, I think we would naturally be affected greatly by it, considering um, how strong of an automotive state that we are. But, you know, and I've seen it affect the 
you know, the cost of materials, just raw materials now for development has gone up so much that it's also driving the cost of development to go up so high, which has not been really attainable from a financial standpoint for for a lot of these developments to come to fruition. So a lot of things, if people have been watching the news that it were announced as a new development, haven't happened, but it's okay. You know, they didn't happen for a reason. And the projects that we do have going on, I think locally and more of Metro Detroit, the ones that are going to go through are going to be good for us, you know. So everything, I think, happens for a reason. But there are lots of things that we have to watch out for. I mean, we've seen a slow turn on the real estate side and parts of the more so the condo market I see in Detroit that really started last fall, you know, and in certain aspects, things have still been um, on a steady climb, but I'm not seeing as many, you know, highest and best offers bidding 10, 20, $30,000 above asking prices anymore. You know, I'm not really seeing a whole lot of that. Um, but I also have seen a greater gap between, again, that affordable price point of homes under 200, you know, we're seeing less of and we're seeing more of the higher end properties like 350 plus. So if, if you look over statistically on that and the type of inventory we've been able to provide in Metro Detroit, you know, the types of prices that we had three, four years ago, you know, just for increase in value have gone up in some cases 40, 50%, you know, and we're talking sometimes the same product, but it's just property values have gone up considerably in that period of time. So I feel as if, you know, we've had a, a, a somewhat of an unnatural rush to higher price points that haven't really been balanced overall with where the whole market of the city of Detroit is. So I'm seeing a lot of that balancing off occurring and it might still show itself through over the course of like the next year. But you think about it, we've been running on a high for over 10 years. So, yep. you know, everything is always cyclical. So, you know, I, I see from buyers, then, you know, whatever price point of which they're making their investment in now, whether it's under 200 or over 600,000, you know, they're being very mindful and strategic about those kind of purchases. So um, I think people are, when they make the decision of where they're gonna be, they, have a, they are going into it much more financially sound. So they'll be able to ride out any type of a downturn that may occur if it hits us and say in the next 18 months to two years. You know, so they'll be stable and the amount of money that they've put down in that, if we see that. But hoping that, you know, any downturn is not gonna be anything close to what we experienced in 2008. We're not gonna see any kind of a drop like that, but more or less an adjustment of where pricing has been. Because we've gone up you know, quite exponentially, um, you know, and, and I think in a relatively short period of time, and we're still needing to see a better balance of all of this influx of development you know, that goes more into the quality of life to really make all of this more balanced. And so we're still seeing a lot of that come to fruition in the city. And it's not just about, you know, how many new restaurants we can open, because how many places can people eat in a week, <laughs> you know? But it's like things like, where do you go to get your car repaired? You know, where do you go to 
shop, you know, for whatever it is you need, you know, whether it be a Walgreens or CVS or those kind of things, like just like easy conveniences, you know, we've still got to build a lot upon providing a stronger, stable quality of life for people. Definitely agreed. So you mentioned the the labor market affecting the development market or the cost the cost is affecting the development mm-hmm. market. So do you think the lack of skilled labor and construction costs are heavily affecting the development market? You know, it has been. I think that's kind of scaled back on how much development that was announced that we haven't seen come to fruition. You know, I, I think you'd have to talk specifically to some of those developers and the crews that they've got. But by all means, I think from a smaller scale standpoint, like, Mr. and Mrs. Home Buyer looking to find a contractor to do, whether it be a small job or a big job, yeah, it's hard to find good quality workers in a timeline that can work with them as well as a price point. So I've seen bits and pieces of of attempts at, at, at building up that workforce again, whether it be in the trade school. Um, I'm trying to think of the, was it Randolph, the training com- community center over on the west side? Mm, um, I have to look into it. Is it Randolph? Sure. I went and visited there once. But, you know, making strides to create environments so there is an alternative to going to school, whether it's junior college or trade schools, once again, I think is strongly needed. Because when I talk to a lot of contractors now that, you know, most of them are, you know, in their late 40s, 50s, and even 60s, and they don't necessarily see a lot of young people coming in to take their place um, for their job. So, you know, I definitely think we're gonna see a shortfall if we haven't already experienced it for skilled labor to do those kind of jobs. Um, so to see money pumped into creating those opportunities, I think is really key. Um, and I've seen a lot of things announced, you know, and the city and various initiatives to grow that workforce and training force. I've seen other private developers looking to create those type of um, training opportunities, and I think it's just strongly needed because college isn't for everybody, and that kind of debt definitely isn't for everybody. Right. You know, not everybody is going to come out of college with those paying jobs to be able to pay off those kind of debts. You know, so. Right. I think being able to broaden the horizon for people to know that there's still opportunity to make money and have a successful career and financial um, life is important and providing opportunity for that is key. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Just to touch base on that a little bit, just speaking as a contractor, I definitely agree it's a lack of skilled labor and skilled trades coming into the industry. Even with my subcontractors, I quickly learned that all because you have a license or you're certified in something, that doesn't necessarily mean you know what you're doing. So I've hired licensed plumbers, master electricians, this and that, and 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 had multiple inspections failed and something not installed properly to code and just the guys, they weren't properly trained. Mm-hmm. So it's definitely a lack of uh, skill, labor, and trades. And you're right, it has to be something, has to be something implemented to encourage more people to say, hey, maybe you can go towards this. College, you know, you can go this way, but you have options. You don't right. have to do that, you can do this. Do you provide within your contracting business a way for people to come in like kind of on the ground level? 
Like as an intern? Yeah. We're no, like, maybe they can, you know, learn on the site so they can get valuable in, you know, education. That's actually education. a really good idea. That's I mean, you know, really you good. still got to make money, but still if there's some way, you know, someone can A, get some kind of a working wage and or learn on the job site. I mean, because we all know that's the best way you learn. Yep, you experience. have to be in the trenches yep. doing it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, yeah. Do you work with real estate wholesalers at all? I mean, I have been contacted by wholesalers before, you know, with inventory, but it's not been my biggest forte of that. I mean, um, the mentality of that kind of a entity, it doesn't necessarily meld a whole lot with my personality. Um, yeah, so not so much. Um, just because, you know, I, I, that concept of like flipping from one investor to the next without, you know, necessarily doing a whole lot to a given product um, to justify the flipping or whatever. Yeah, I, it isn't just been, it hasn't been a realm of real estate that really interests me, although I've seen it all around me and the effects of it. Prime example, like on the east side of like East English Village and Morningside, you know, I saw so many houses in the downturn picked up by various investment groups and somewhat renovated and a lot of them are rented out as either Section 8 or some kind of HUD housing. And, and it was great because it provided an opportunity for people that, you know, in many cases are part of what we consider like our working poor. You know, they have jobs, but their money that they make isn't affording them to be able to buy their own houses. But they still means it still means that they deserve to be in a safe dwelling. So they might get some assistance for a down payment on, on rentals or use Section 8. And that was providing a, a strong need for people that couldn't buy but still needed to be in residences. But then we saw as the property values went up, a lot of these companies were turning and flipping their properties to other investment groups, you know, um, as we and, and then as the city was increasing the demands on keeping these properties, rightfully so, keeping these properties up to code, now as landholders and landlords, you know, it made the overall return on some of these properties less as rentals, and then they had to convert them into for sale properties. So we're seeing some of that, you know, some of those flip properties now turn into actual residence for people. In some cases are good, but sometimes, you know, you're seeing a lot of things done the minimal amount of work, yeah. you know, and the, but they're trying to get the highest end price point. Yeah. So, you know, I don't know. I mean, but I'm, I'm, I would be stupid to say that we don't need that kind of investment in the state because we need somebody that's gonna buy and invest in those properties and pay the taxes. I mean, so it's, it's kind of like a catch-22. You have to take some of that that's not necessarily good or bad, you know, with the whole market. I mean, yeah. it's all a part of, of, of yeah, the real estate market. It's all a part of it, so, you know, yeah. But it's not, yeah, for me personally, I haven't dive into that, because the breed of person that's looking for that kind of inventory isn't somebody who's necessarily caring a whole lot about who's in it, what quality of life they're providing. Yeah, it's, and, it's strictly a numbers game. Yeah, and I, you know, and you have to understand the numbers. You have to be able to talk believe over my experience and time I've been able to, but 
I just am not interested in it as much. I like the I like the emotion on physical attachment that working with individual a lot of cases individual buyers and sellers and or smaller type of investment groups do when they're when they're putting themselves and their financial pocketbooks, you know, on the table for making those investments. Got it. Got it. Yeah. Now, speaking of personal attachment, do you think real estate, the industry will ever move away from being such a personal industry and more into a voice technology related industry? Just one of my last podcasts, I had a, a mortgage banker from Quicken Loans on there at Dallas. And um, he mentioned that you can use your Alexa device to pay your mortgage just, you know, from voice. So at some point would the industry move towards Alexa, I would like to purchase a home. I definitely believe that technology is going to change things in the industry dramatically. You know, there are going to be people that they're going to respond to that. They're going to like that type of immediate um, yeah, everyone wants want, need, yeah. resolution that that kind of technology gives them. But I still feel as if there's still a large component of the market we're dealing with individuals that are moving from far away to a new place you know i still think there's a level of tangibility in that making that purchase that they're going to want to be with individuals who truly know what they're talking about i mean and sometimes that might transcribe into you know to our skype interview or facetime but i still think there's going to be a level of working with individuals that's still gonna be needed, whether it's a FaceTime version of that or hands-on where you come and see where you're moving to, I th- still think that, that that will never go away. Yeah. You know, But yeah, there's gonna be a, 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 a percentage of the market that will definitely be drawn for that way of doing de- real estate. You know, um, it might be more focused on the investment realm, truthfully, than it will be somebody who's looking to truly occupy a property themselves, I still think. You know, um, but yeah, I think it will definitely be here. I mean, they're already talking about closings that will happen virtually now where you don't have to physically go to a closing like we are all used to doing where you are given a time and date and you show up at a location with monies. You know, there's going to be a point in time where you're just going to be in front of a computer wherever you're at and that's your scheduled time, you sign documents and it's done, or not even a set time. It's like it's gonna happen sometime this day once you get to sign documents and mm. you know, and drafts or I mean wires are drafted and be done. Yeah, yeah. I see that, definitely. Yeah, yeah, me too. Yeah. So and I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I just think, you know, as we are, you know, we have to remember that as things evolve we have to too to be able to stay relevant. So you know, how those types of technology impact the way that we do business. We just have to be able to, you know, in some cases embrace it, if not embrace it, understand it better so that we're not left in the dust. Exactly. You know? Yeah, yeah, you hit it right on the head, evolving. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I just think it's so interesting. Think of, you know, when you first started real estate compared to where we're at now, and you kind of just said, you know, you may Skype, you may FaceTime, you may you know, you do virtual staging. It's just, it seemed like everything evolved so much. So yeah. it's going to continue to evolve. 
and we as people have to evolve with right. it. Right. Well, I mean, there, there was a time when I used to do all my own marketing and create flyers and, you know, post things all myself. And it's just, yeah, it's, I think, in a very quick turn um, of time, you need people who literally do just that to be able to do that kind of um, work for you because the way that things are moving so fast, yeah, you've got to have people that are good in that thing to work with you and do it so that you can focus on working with the clients and everything because you can't yeah. do everything all at once. Yeah. So that kind of management, I think, is really key. Do you do direct mail? I haven't done direct mail in a long time. I did it when I was working with specific developments for, you know, but I haven't done that just because I know when I get mail and I like, you know, I throw a lot of stuff out. I don't necessarily read it. No. If it's a personal letter, you know, that you attach to somebody or a past client, that's a different thing. But I think just to say, hey, this property is sold, you know, the homesnap, realtor.com, Zillow's, Trulia, Redfin's of the world have given access to a lot of people where if they're looking, you know, they have that within their fingertips to kind of seek that out. They don't necessarily need a flyer to do it. Yeah. I don't know. But a little bit, you know, having a little bit of exposure and a little bit of everything I think is always good is knowing how to, you know, um, diversify in how you do. Um, your marketing and advertising I think is really important because it's, it's never one one degree it's in you know in multiple, multiple directions avenues. yeah yeah so do you have any advice for someone who wants to purchase their first home yeah i mean i think the mindset of somebody looking to buy their first home can be in you know multiple different things you know they you know could be living with family members and know they need to get out and just feel like i've got to get my own place and not knowing what that is or you know, a young couple that have been renting and they're looking to purchase their first house. They want to get out of a rental, and you know, what do they do? So, yeah, I mean, I think getting a hold of your finances first and foremost is the biggest thing I can give give to people. So, whether that's going to you know a HUD counselor or somebody that works within your own community, whether it's, you know, your local community groups or, um, yeah, that, that can give you sound advice about your financial um, uh, situation so you can be really prepared on what that really means to buy a place, you know, what things you need to look out for, you know, what you should be saving in order to afford this new house. And, and that, you know, and that changes dramatically from any price point that you're looking at. So yeah, the financial part is a big key part of it, you know, knowing the neighborhood that you want to be in. So again, with online being so accessible these days, doing a lot of your own research on areas that you want to be in is kind of key. You know, seeing where things are selling, what kind of housing stock you're looking for. Like you can do a lot of that on your own. But I think when it comes down to making the final decision, you're still going to need a good qualified agent unless, you know, you make a pretty good part-time living at doing real estate yourself. You're still going to need somebody to assist you with 
large majority of that whole process. Yep, someone that has yeah. feet on the ground. That's exactly, familiar. and yeah. and works well in the areas in which you're you're interested in looking in, or you know knows or you create a relationship where they know you well enough to know what you're looking for to be the better advocate for you and in, in, in finding those properties that are going to fit your needs well. You know, so yeah, financial, good agent. And then, you know, having a good solid background, uh, um, if you don't know anything about what the mechanicals or whatever of a house is finding a really good inspector or general contractor that you can rely on like yourself to go through the property so that you know what you're going to be up against because no home is perfect even new construction isn't perfect you know because once those walls are up it's very difficult to see how everything was put together you know but having somebody skilled that can do a, a good over analysis of what to expect for repairs and maintenance on the property is another key component to make that financial end work. So sometimes those go hand in hand, you know, as important factors when you're looking at a house. Then a lot of it's just like having a great deal of faith, a great deal of patience (laughs) to get you through the rest, you know, and not afraid to ask questions. So um, that's one thing. A lot of times I talk with a lot of first time buyers, they don't know what they don't know. And um, I try to think about that a lot with each client and everybody's different as far as what questions they should be asking and if they're not asking it, maybe preemptively giving them advice on certain things that they should be looking out for. Yeah, because you know, I've got clients that are easy. They're like, oh, I found a house and tell me where to sign and tell me what to do and okay, and it's it's done. And then you have other people that are, you know, they're watching every penny. Like, if you tell me I only need $500 for this transaction and then something comes up and it's another, well, guess what? You know, I have to wait another paycheck till I have that money. So it's like everybody's different and you have to be very much, you know, uh, very aware of of that for each client to make sure that you're doing what's best and right for them specifically and not generically. Yeah. Got it. So as I mentioned earlier, you're pretty much the go-to realtor for, let's just not say Detroit, everywhere, Michigan. I'd like to think so. <laughs> <laughs> how does people, how does someone contact you if they wanted to hire you? Honestly, I mean, I, I'm i not one of those agents that has a full voicemail on my phone um, as much as sometimes those are the trends so that you can only text somebody if you want to reach them. So I like to clear out my voicemail daily if not three or four times a day with messages that aren't because I like the fact that clients can actually reach me so I think my phone is the best way to reach me and that could either be via text or um, voice call um, is what I like to respond to and of course email is great too because um, in this age of technology I think we've all become a bit ADD so I'm constantly checking my phone for emails and text messages and incoming calls constantly. But, you know, in this business, I've chosen it, and it's in some ways chosen me for a variety of reasons. And part of doing what I do, and I think being as successful as I have been, is making sure that I'm available to my clients. And you can't necessarily put a time block on when that occurs. 
you know, people can be respectful of time, but you know, if they want to reach you, they got to know that they can reach you. And sometimes it's later than you want. Sometimes it's earlier than you want, but you know, that's all a part of keeping those strong relationships with the people you work with. Good. So. But yeah, think, phone. Yeah. Do I need to give my number? Is that right? If you want to. <laughs> oh, phone number. So that number is 313-617-2699, which was actually, I think it was the first phone number I've had since 1998 for cell phone or something. I remember when I got my first cell phone. Really? I don't think I've changed my number. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> since my first cell phone, whenever that was. Yeah, kind of crazy. Um, Yeah. And then email is lt at lizindetroit.com or you can always f- send me a message through my website, which is lizindetroit.com. So yeah, hopefully I'll hear from some of you. I'm sure you will. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Thank you. Chris. Thank you, Liz. Thanks.